Well, hi again, everybody, and welcome to Grumpy Old Broadcasters, our brand new podcast. This is episode 12, and we are happy to have you tuned in with us wherever you may be in podcast land today. I'm Dan Scott, one of the Grumpy Guys. We uh, expect to have most of the group with us here today as we uh, get back at it for the first time in a couple of weeks. And uh, hopefully we're going to be ramping things up on a regular basis now as we get closer to the beginning of what we hope is going to be a football season in the fall of 2020. We've got uh, some guests lined up for the future, including after today. I think next week it'll be Mick Mixon, the very fine voice of the Charlotte Panthers who will be joining us. But we've got a good guest for you today, uh, a young man who has accomplished a lot and been through a lot already in his life and still has a lot of life left to go. Landon Powell will be joining us. Uh, Just a couple of things. This podcast is brought to you, uh, as always, by our friends at Todaro Pizza in Greenville. And uh, they're on uh, Markley Street in Greenville, just uh, a block or two from Fleur Field at the West End, where normally this time of year we'd be having some minor league baseball. But as we all know, 2020 has been anything but a normal year. However, uh, they are still cranking out the best pizza in the upstate, uh, along with many other menu items. John and the folks there have done a marvelous job of uh, weathering this pandemic, making sure that you are safe as a customer and still finding ways to uh, get that great pizza to you, including, uh, at one juncture anyway, take-home kits to make it yourself. I mean, they got really, really creative, as a lot of businesses had to do. It's one of the reasons they've been around so long. The original location in Clemson has been around forever, and uh, this newer location a couple of years into uh, the expansion now in Greenville has been going like gangbusters. You can check out the website, todaropizza.com, T-O-D-A-R-O, pizza.com for the hours, the menu, and everything else. But I can tell you that I've been a loyal Todaro customer since uh, about 1999, and the pizza is just incredible. You will love it. If you're not from the upstate of South Carolina, you're coming into this area, put that on your food bucket list. You need to check it out, Todaro Pizza, 116 North Markley Street in Greenville. The other thing I'll remind you is we want to hear your feedback about this podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or criticisms, you can comment on any of the places that you listen to the podcast. They have comment areas, or you can simply email me, thedanscottshow at gmail.com, thedanscottshow at gmail.com. As mentioned, this is episode 12 of Grumpy Old Broadcasters. I'm Dan Scott. Tom Van Hoy is with us. Hoping Cobb Oxford is going to be joining us here in just a bit. Uh, our special guest today, as we mentioned a moment ago, is Landon Powell. And as we were talking before we got this this uh, interview process underway uh, privately between us, uh, Landon, at age 38, has lived an awful lot of life in a very short period of time. Let me see if I've got all this stuff down now. Played college baseball at South Carolina, was named to the all-time College World Series baseball team, drafted, made it to the major leagues, caught a no-hitter, one of only 19 catchers to catch a perfect game, which happened 10 years ago, the one thrown by Dallas Braden on Mother's Day 2010. Um, has gone through the unspeakable tragedy of losing a child, has battled an autoimmune disease, 
and now is the head baseball coach of one of the most successful Division II programs in the entire country at North Greenville. Can you find anything else to do, Landon? (laughs) (laughs) I I might become a grumpy old broadcaster one day. Maybe that's what I'll do. Well, uh, the the the, uh, the qualifications for it are not that difficult. I can promise you. How are you, my friend? Don't sell, don't sell yourself short. You're you're a true professional, Dan. I'm doing good. I'm I'm glad to see your face this morning, and um, just happy to be on with you guys. Well, let's let's start with the uh, the obvious question. How has uh, COVID nineteen been treating you and the Powell family? How are you guys doing? You know, it was obviously, uh, It's. I think it's hit us all pretty hard. It's kind of a shocking world we're living in right now. And it's, uh, you know, we've lost a lot of our normal. And uh, for me, you know, happening in the middle of baseball season was was uh, more a big shock to the system. You know, we, we were having a good season rolling along, maybe 20 games in and um, playing really well. And, you know, when you're a baseball coach and you're in the middle of the season, I mean, the rest of the world doesn't exist. I mean, this is all you're working on. And uh, so when that when that all happened, I mean, within 48 hours, we heard about it and our season got canceled. And uh, so that was, man, it's just a blindside you and it's now what? And uh, you feel really lost and you just have everything ripped away from you that you've been working on for the last year. So that was tough. But uh, as time went on, the silver lining that I've seen in this is that I have two young kids. I have an 11 year old son and a seven year old daughter. And I have been able to spend more time with them in the last three or four months than I probably have in the last three or four years. Um, and that's just been, that's been truly a blessing to get to spend all that time with those kids. And uh, we went to the beach for several weeks. Um, we've, you know, just, I've spent a lot of time with my son coaching him in baseball, which is something I normally don't get to do because I'm coaching college ball. So to be able to actually go and invest in my own son and really work with him, so that that's been some silver lining with COVID. Um, but it's still a, as I'm sure you you deal with on a daily basis. It's just um, it's making life harder to to navigate when it comes to professional life. And so as we're nearing our our players getting back on campus and school resuming and and those kind of things you know, all the red tape that we're having to go through and all the precautions we're having to make. And, um, you know, it's just college sports are not going to look anything like they used to look. And, uh, and I think that's kind of been a hard pill to swallow, but we'll see, you know, with this is the hand we've been dealt and, uh, all we can do is make the best of it, you know, get, get lemons, make lemonade. Yeah. You know, everything is a matter of perspective and I saw something posted on, I think it was Twitter the other day, that someone who was born in 1900, by the time they were 45 years old, would have lived through the pandemic of 1918. They would have lived through the Great Depression and two world wars. You start thinking about things in those terms what we're going through right now. Yeah, it's difficult, but there have been a lot of people who've gone through a lot of things a lot more difficult than what we're facing right now. Yeah, I agree. I think the progression of our world and of our nation has made my generation, um, this is a really bad scenario for us. Um, but I, thought, I agree I thought with you, my grandparents. I thought you were going to say soft. Well, soft will give you another word, maybe. You know, I, I never <laughs> thought of myself as soft, but I can tell you I have some friends and some people around me that probably are. Uh, 
you know, but if I asked my grandparents about this situation, you know, they would, you know, it, they'd be frustrated, I'm sure, but um, they probably wouldn't be as frustrated as I am. And, uh, yeah, I think some of it, too, is just, it's not just the virus, it's all the other things that are going on in our country, you know, with the social injustice and um, the division and politics and all the other things. It's, um, I mean, for me as a Christian, the, the, the removal of God in so many places around our country. Um, there's just a lot of things that are concerning. Um, but I'm a baseball coach, so I uh, try to just worry about what I'm good at. And uh, I, I trust that the leaders in our country and the people we elect and the, the leaders of our church and, and that they will, that they will do the best things for us. And um, I'll, I'll be there when needed and called upon. Tom landed happy. Uh, handle with your uh, with your staff and with your players. Try to keep in in contact with them. I mean, you had, as you said, in the middle of the season, you had a great season going and it went away. Have you, you've been able to keep in contact with them. And what about in terms of recruiting? And if they, they come back uh, from a scholarship standpoint and seniors and things like a lot of things on the table for you. Yeah, I think uh, so. For me, I, I I keep a very close relationship with a lot of my players. I think that's one thing I've always tried to do as a coach is. I, mean, I text them regularly. Um, almost every player on my team, I have a personal relationship with outside of baseball. And so, when this happened, I, I tried to keep those lines of communication open as much as I could. Um, it, it gets hard. You got forty something players. You got forty players. It's it, it's difficult to stay in touch with all of them. But um, as this, I, I usually talk to them every couple of weeks. Um, we have a group me thread that um, we communicate on, um, and then we've done a couple Zoom meetings. So, uh, coaching staff, same thing, you know, just, there's not a whole lot we've been able to do because of the NCAA dead period. I can't go recruit. Um, a lot of the summer leagues have been canceled. So, um, my, a lot of my guys aren't playing. There's no, I can't go see them. Um, so it's just been staying in contact with them, texting, group me, couple zoom meetings, you know, trying to keep their, all their heads on straight that we're going to get through this and get back to baseball and get back to college life. And, um, to it. It's definitely been difficult, but I think the fact that before this started, I already had a really good line of communication with my players has made it a little easier. Um, so we had a big Zoom call yesterday with every guy on the roster was on the call and all the coaches. And so that was good to see some faces and hear some voices. And, you know, they're going to be showing up here in, you know, two and a half weeks. So we're, we're excited to get them back on campus and start spending some more time together. Landon, I couldn't help but laugh as you were talking because you're you're talking about all the different technology, and I guarantee you, Tom Van Hoy has no idea what GroupMe is. And he had such a difficult time with Zoom when we first started all this uh, te technology for Tom. He has uh, it's been kicking and screaming, but for someone of uh, of your generation who grew up with it, it's just another tool to use to to do what you do. Yeah, you know, it's Tom. You're not missing much, but it's uh, <laughs> you definitely uh, as for me as a coach and dealing with this new generation coming through. I have to be versed on all the technology because um, that's that is that is the life for these guys. Um, it's amazing how different their generation is, even from mine. And um, you know, that's they that phone is permanently connected to their hands. Uh, it's it's every part of what they do every day. So. Um, yeah, it, it definitely helps. I mean, uh, to think that if this would have happened when I was in college um, at South Carolina and, you know, cell phones had just come out and 
the internet was fairly new. You know, how would our how would we have navigated this? There's no Zoom calls. There's no group me text threads. There's you know, there's no FaceTime video. It, it, it would have been a totally different scenario. So AOL uh, instant I think messenger. that probably has AOL, yeah, yeah, AOL yeah. instant messenger. Instant messenger on AOL. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so. Landon Powell joining us here on uh, Grumpy Old Broadcasters. This is episode 12. Tom Van Hoy is uh, with us as well. I'm Dan Scott. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about the social media aspect of things because uh, we know what a uh, phenomenon that's become. And you as a college coach, what kind of limits do you put on your players as to what they can and can't do on social media during the course of a season. And, and then on top of that, being at a Christian college, how, how does that come into play? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the first things we discuss in the recruiting process, um, letting them know, hey, we're, this is a Christian school. Um, we have certain codes we go by here, certain rules. And, you know, it's a no-alcohol university, no drugs or alcohol, um, zero tolerance uh, tolerancy with that. Um, so guys have to make good decisions. They have to put first and foremost their, you know, put their careers, their their career as a student athlete, but also just a baseball player. If they're a Christian, put their their Christian faith first. So we ask them to always prioritize their thing, you know, their lives like that. And, um, you know, I tell them straight up: if you get called or you do something you're not allowed to, I can't protect you. Like these are the rules. This is what's going to happen if you get caught. Now be a professional and make your own decisions and, and go live your life. So we've been very fortunate with that. I've, I've been at North Greenwood now six years, believe it or not. And I've only had, you know, three instances where I've had to dismiss a player from a team from doing something. And, you know, so we, we teach them don't take pictures on social media. Don't post a bunch of things. You know, it's just the Internet's permanent, you know. And once you go and do something and put it out there, it's there forever. And so try to try to teach our guys, think before you act. And that's that's not just being at a Christian school. Those are good life lessons. Those are things that will serve them well once they go out into the work world, you know, and, and they want to get a job, whatever is happening in their, in their social media life is going to impact whether they get that job or not. And, and you better believe people that are, you know, managers or bosses that are interviewing them are going to go look through those things. So uh, got to be smart what you do. It's like Herm Edwards once said, there's nothing good after midnight and think about it before you hit sand, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's uh, good words to live by there. Has it hurt you at all from a recruiting state? It doesn't seem to have with the great success you've had uh, because of, uh, I mean, kids or college want to do some of the things you mentioned there. Is it, has it been difficult in that regard for you to recruit? You mean being at a Christian school? Well, and the, yeah, the responsibilities you just mentioned that they can't do yeah. certain Maybe they might you know, be the job so when I left I was a assistant coach at Furman I had an opportunity to stay there and I really enjoyed my time there with Dan and all those guys um, when I got hired in North Greenville where they offered me that job I was a little worrisome about that a little hesitant of you know this is not your typical college life like a South Carolina or Clemson where you're going and tailgating for football games and you're you know guys are in fraternities or dating sorority girls or you know it's just not that life and uh what I've but I also as a Christian felt like God was calling me there. And um, I've been very surprised, not not surprised really, but pleased that it has not really impacted us. I, I can tell you in in the five, and six, five or six years I've been doing this, yeah, I'm not sure if I've ever lost a recruit because it was a Christian school. 
um, you know, most kids um, enjoy that environment, a smaller environment, smaller classroom size, more family environment, family feel. Um, I can tell you that the employees, the professors, the, everyone that works at North Greenville are some of the most friendly, hospitable, loving people. And a lot of that is because of their Christian faith. And our players, our recruits, they see that. Um, and I think that they, they, they value that environment. So, um, you know, it, it might, it might be a hard pill to swallow for some of the guys that transfer from, I get some transfers from big schools like Clemson, South Carolina, Georgia, UNC, I mean, Oklahoma state, I get them from all over. It's a little bit of a pill to swallow that, okay, this is a different school. Like I'm not coming here to tailgate for football games and the party, you know, I'm coming here to most of them are coming to better their career as a, as a baseball player and, and get a great education while they do it. So, as long as they have those priorities in order, when they arrive, we haven't had many issues. So um, I wouldn't say it's hurt me at all. I think – I will tell you this. I think in the last couple of years I've noticed it might be helping. There, there are kids and families coming out now that are putting a bigger value on a Christian school because of some of the things that are going on in our world. And um, so there, there are families and kids that they're seeking out schools like North Greenville because that's that's the environment they want to be in and um, so I think that's been a benefit for us and I, I can see that happening that's good to hear from my standpoint the other thing that has to come into play is what the kids call your street cred uh, the fact that you are a former major league player that you have another former major league player John Kutlangas on your staff that has to help in the recruiting process as well yeah, I think that definitely does. It, I'll tell you, early on, it was a, a big lifeblood for us to, to be able to jumpstart our program. You know, when, when I took over at North Greenville, it was not the best of scenarios. Um, they were – the program was really down. You know, they, the year before I got there, they were 2-18 and 18 in the conference. They, they had only won eight games the previous year, so 8-38 and 38 was their record. So, facility was bad. Um, they only had three-and-a-half scholarships. Like we said, it was a Bible college, you know, so there were, you know, it was, it was not the, the exact place that a lot of kids had slotted in as their number one choice for a college, uh, for a college baseball situation. So I think myself being a former major league player and coach Coot Langus being a former major league player, that gave us some credibility when in, in recruiting and allowed us to, you know, tell some kids, look, come here. I know our program hasn't been good. I know our facility is not beautiful, but you got two coaches that know what we're doing. And we didn't just read it in a book or watch a video. Like we, we lived that life. We, we walked that walk. We can show you firsthand what it's going to take to, to better your game, to develop and, and, and reach the next level. Um, and then our first year at North Greenville, we have three guys going to professional baseball. So that was a big deal. That was a, that was some affirmation. And it showed a lot of other recruits, Hey, we're not just saying that this is this, this happened. Here's three guys that have been – they were all seniors. Two of them are redshirt seniors, and the other one was a regular senior that had been playing college baseball for four or five years and never had any interest from scouts. And all three of them get drafted and go into pro ball. So um, that was kind of a feather in the cap, if you will, and that, that gave us some momentum with the next recruiting class. And, you know, it's not really slowed down since then. We've, I think we were talking yesterday. We've been there six years now. We've had 14 guys, I think, going to professional baseball. Um, so that's that's been a really good thing for our program. I think that has a lot to do with my career as a player, not only knowing what to teach these guys and how to teach them, 
but also the the relationship I have with scouts. Um, I think scouts give some they give a decent amount of credibility to what myself and Coach Kootlang has say because they know that we didn't that they know we've been there. So when I go and compare a pitcher to some other pitcher that I caught in the big leagues, you know that that so there's a lot of credibility involved in that, and and that helps our players get a better chance to go to the next level. Hey, Landon, as, as we do this, a lot of folks may not know. You might give us a little background on this. I've been fortunate enough to, to broadcast those uh, Conference Carolina championships up in Burlington for five years for Patterson Communication and seeing. And I want to get back to your 2018 team in just a moment. That's one of the best division two, one of the best teams I've seen in a long time. But can you tell folks that are just tuning in a little bit about uh, uh, Conference Carolina, about Division two? And you just mentioned and, and probably went by only three and a half scholarships. At the Division One level, the higher level, they have eleven point seven. How are you able to manage that part of it as well? Yeah, so that that's actually um, it was a surprise to me because I didn't know a lot about Division Two baseball when I got offered the job. I, I played at the Division One school. I've been coaching at Furman, which is Division One school. So, you know, getting to Division Two, I thought it would be a, a, a pretty decent sized drop off, and I was wrong. Uh, Division two baseball, especially here in the Southeast, in this region, is very, very strong. I mean, I would align schools like North Greenville and Lander and Erskine and Francis Marion with those mid-major schools in our state, like PC and Wofford and Furman. And, you know, the, the, the level of play is every bit as comparable. And, um, and that was surprising to me to see that there's a really good caliber of player at this level. They play good baseball. And, uh, the scholarships, you know, at the Division II level, the most you can get is nine scholarships for baseball. So when I got hired at North Greenville, we had three and a half, which we were, you know, I tell people all the time, we were going to a gunfight with a knife. and uh, <laughs> But we were able to have some success, and we've been given some scholarships over the years, so now I'm up to six scholarships. We've had six for two years in a row, and, uh, you know, we've, we've, had, we've been fortunate to be ranked number one in the country um, in both of those seasons with only having six scholarships, so we've been able to make our scholarship situation work. And I think that's because, you know, we're having success. People are interested in coming, but also North Greenville is a, a affordable Christian university. Um, our, our tuition's not um, outrageous. So that helps families be able to afford it. But you're right. I mean, division two baseball and division two sports here in the Southeast are very strong. The conference Carolinas, you know, when, when I first got into this, um, the conference was not super strong. Mount Olive, up in uh, Goldsboro, North Carolina, uh, was probably the cream of the crop of the Conference Carolinas. And then Erskine was probably the next best school. Um, and those two schools kind of always battled it out for that conference championship. Belmont Abbey was, was on the rise and had been doing really well. And then it was a pretty good drop-off for the rest of the schools. North Greenville was the worst school in the conference when I got hired. You know, they were um, – I mean, in my first year, they picked us to finish dead last in the polls. Uh, we were picked to finish 10th out of 10 teams going into the season. And we actually ended up winning the conference championship the first year, which was incredible. So, uh, But the conference has greatly improved since I've been in it. Um, I mean, obviously, North Greenville has gotten a lot better. Mount Olive has stayed who they are. Erskine and Belmont Abbey are both still really good programs. Limestone has improved. Um, and then you got – we just added two new schools to our conference. Francis Marion has joined us and UNC Pembroke. So uh, our, our conference is getting a lot stronger. And um, this region's great. I mean, the Peach Belt and the SAC are also very strong baseball conferences in this region. And so when you look at the – you know, last year I think there was a time the top 25 poll – I think there was eight teams from our region in the top 25. 
and there were five in the top 10 from our region. So I, I would kind of associate our region a little bit with like the SEC of college baseball. Um, you know, we're the, we're the SEC division two version, maybe. Um, our region's got some really strong baseball. Landon Powell with us on this episode 12 of Grumpy Old Broadcasters. Um, so all this begs uh, a question. You, you've had incredible success in, in six years, not only on the field, but the facilities have improved, and and we've seen everything that, that you've accomplished there. Most guys in your situation might have already made left a vapor trail heading to a bigger school. You're, you're a Greenville guy. Your your wife is, is, is firmly entrenched in the Greenville community. How much does that play – into how much time you plan on spending here. What what are your aspirations as far as, as being a college coach? Yeah, you know, I think when I first got into coaching um, six years ago, coming right out of playing in the major leagues, getting into coaching at Furman, you know, my goal was to climb the ladder and be a, a big-time head coach at South Carolina or some Power 5 school and go to Omaha. And, you know, that, that was just how I was wired, to always try to strive to be the best. And – um, North Greenville was an opportunity to get my foot in the door as a head coach and start building my resume. And I would say five years ago, I would have told you North Greenville was a stepping stone job for me. And it's it's funny how God works and how time changes. And um, as I've gone on, I've started to value what I have at North Greenville. I've started to value my quality of life. Uh, you know, it's it's a job that allows a lot of freedoms for me to spend with my family and to do some things. Um it's a job that's very fulfilling because of what I get to do with my athletes on a daily basis. I get to not only teach them baseball, but I get to pour into their lives. I get to have great conversations about faith and, and life and, and uh, some things that I probably wouldn't be able to do if I was at different schools. You know, I think about when I was at Furman, if I could have sat down with a, you know, if a player came in and said he, you know, his parents are getting a divorce. If I would have been able to sit down and talk to that player in a, in a faith-based conversation and, 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 minister to him and, and teach, you know, show him some Bible verses that may help him and share some of my own personal testimony. If I would have done those things and that player wasn't a Christian and didn't receive it well, um, I would have been reprimanded for that. Um, I probably would have been told not to do that again. And so at North Greenville, they want me to do that. that that's what I'm called to do. And, and I, I see that as a, that's a great thing. It, it, it makes me very, proud of the school I'm at and the job I'm doing. And, um, you know, I would still, obviously my, 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 my alma mater, South Carolina is a place that, you know, I bleed garnet and, um, I would, I would always have an opportunity to love to go back there if that ever came about and North Greenville knows that, but I've been, um, courted by several other schools in the last three or four years. And, um, I've had several opportunities to go other places and, I just feel like I'm still wanted here in Greenville and my family's like you mentioned, my wife's very entrenched here. Um, two young kids. Uh, we love where we live. We love our church. We love our, our, our youth baseball teams and um, things that we're involved in. My next door neighbor is my college roommate, David Marchbanks, who played at South Carolina with me. And, you know, we live, our houses are 20 feet apart. So it, it would have to be a really good opportunity for me to be pulled away from here. And, uh, yeah, I was a finalist for the Furman job when Harker was, and uh, and and obviously that was a great hire from Furman. Brett Harker is an incredible guy, and I hate that that's how that's worked out for him right now. But 
Yeah, I trust that he'll get another opportunity. I was also a finalist for the Citadel job a couple of years ago, and and uh, you know that ended up not working out. And uh, then this summer, I was, uh, you know, I was uh, I had an opportunity to possibly go to Charleston Southern University, and uh, that was right when COVID hit, and there was a lot of questions around that, and I decided to turn that down and stay at North Greenville, and and uh, really, I guess plant roots more at North Greenville and I plan on being here as long as North Greenville wants me. And if, uh, if God opens another door and calls me somewhere else, I'll listen. So as we, we kind of transition away from college baseball, at, at least uh, your current situation for a moment, you, you, you did mention that when you talk to scouts, uh, if, if you compare a pitcher to a guy you called in the major leagues, it carries some more weight for you. Um, I, so I, I couldn't help but but uh, laugh again. Uh, you know, how many of your uh, pitchers that you see are you comparing to Dallas Braden? And is it the Dallas Braden we're seeing on social media now or the Dallas Braden <laughs> that you caught in that no-hitter 10 years ago, or are they the same person? Yeah, they're about the same person. Dallas is uh, Dallas has not changed much. He is who he is, and uh, that's why you love him. Uh, he's a character, and and if if, you, if people out there don't follow him on social media, they should. Uh, he's a great follow, um, especially if you love baseball, because ninety nine percent of what he puts out there is baseball, and uh, he's very entertaining. He's he's a he sees the world through a different lens than a lot of us, and uh, I value that about him. Um, and looks yeah, like I mean, Cap- Dallas- looks like Captain Caveman right now too. Yeah, and he's got a weird look. He, he's, he <laughs> looks like Krusty the Clown a little bit, and uh, or, or or Marv Marv from Home Alone. Uh, he's got a little bit of that going on. But uh, you know, he uh, I, I will say this: he, as a pitcher, Dallas was not incredibly talented uh, with with uh, tools. I mean, he didn't throw ninety five. You know, he. He wasn't six foot five throwing downward angle, but that's what made him even. That's what made his perfect game and that story so much cooler. Is that you had a a twenty fifth round draft pick that was a a skinny lefty that threw eighty eight miles per hour, who was not a major league all star and had not done a lot of big time things in the major leagues to that point, and for him to go out and throw a perfect game, um, you know, he was just. It was just magical, man. It was incredible. Um, I watched it. I had never seen the perfect game before, Dan, since it happened. And then they showed it on Mother's Day during quarantine. And, um, you know, they advertised it. They were going to show it on ESPN. And I think MLB Network was showing it also. And um, we were at the beach with my family. And uh, I told my wife, I was like, I'm going to take hold in my son, and we're going to sit down and watch it. I've never seen it since it happened. I mean, I've seen highlights and stuff, but I've never gone back and watched every pitch of the game. And so I sat with my 11-year-old son and watched the whole game, and it was such a cool thing to go back and relive that. And I could remember pitches, and it's amazing what your brain does, especially as a catcher. I mean, we've been training for that our whole life. You you remember pitches and counts and situations. And so as the game was going on, it kept refreshing my memory of, oh, yeah, I remember this, and I remember this pitch right here, and and, and things would start happening. So really cool for my son to sit there and watch that. And uh, I even got a couple of hits that game, which I didn't really remember. But I guess I, I got two hits that game, too. And um, I watched it. You know, Dallas's fastest pitch he threw that game was 87 miles per hour. You know, so if you think about that in today's baseball, you know, a pitcher's fastest pitch being 87 the entire game, uh, it probably wouldn't happen. It doesn't even happen in college ball. You go watch an SEC game, you know, the guys are throwing harder in 87. So, 
um, it just shows what pitching can do. You know, if you locate a fastball, you can change speeds, and you're a bulldog, you can have success on the mound in baseball. Tom, before before you go, let me let me follow up with this. You, sure. you, you were you were a backup catcher at Oakland. So did you normally catch Dallas, or did just this just happen to be the day that the starting catcher got the day off and you got the opportunity? So I, I did normally catch Dallas. Uh, he, he was the guy I had called him in the minor leagues. We, we got drafted together, came up through the minor leagues together, so we had a great rapport. Um, and I normally called him that season at least. I mean, every season I would kind of catch one guy. Like that year was Dallas. The next year I caught Gio Gonzalez most mm-hmm. of the year. The next year Trevor Cahill was kind of my guy. Um, but at that time when Dallas did a perfect game, Kurt Suzuki was actually on the DL. So um, they had called jo- uh, Josh Donaldson up. Um, from the minor leagues he was the backup catcher so I was actually the starting catcher at that time and Josh Donaldson was the backup catcher and uh, Suzuki was on the DL so uh, but I probably would have been catching that day anyway because I was catching Dallas what was that like uh, maybe going down the stretch knowing that there's a possibility that you're going to have a, a perfect game going was were you nervous Dallas nervous what was it like on the in the dugout as well yeah, so for Dallas, uh, I'll tell you how he, he's like a character. If you see him on social media, all those things we spoke about him, he's just the most outgoing, bubbly, like no-filter, carefree guy. But when on the day he pitches, he's he's a to- he's Mr. Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. I mean, the day he pitches, he shows up, and he is he's in war mode, battle mode. He doesn't talk to anybody. He's super serious. He's, he's very routine-oriented. That's just how he is on days he pitches. So – during that game, I mean, he was he was very serious from the first pitch all the way to the end, which was easy for us to handle because, you know, the days he pitches, you don't mess with him a whole lot. You go over the scout report, you might talk to him a little bit during the game about a couple hitters or a couple pitches, but for the most part, you just leave him alone, let him do his thing. And, and so that was easy to handle during the perfect game. For me, um, I didn't realize what was going on until maybe the fifth or sixth. I mean, you know, as a catcher, as many games as I've caught in my life, you've had – I bet you I've had – 50 games that were a no hitter in the fifth inning, you know, so it's, it's not uncharted territory. You kind of, you know, assume I always got no hitter through the fifth, but you know, something will happen. You know, it always does. Um, and so when it got to like the seventh, I realized that this is legitimate shot in a no hitter. And I was at, I remember sitting in the dugout thinking to myself, okay, no hits. But then I was like, has anybody even been on? I don't think uh, there's not been an error or walk. And that's when, like, the light bulb went off, like, this is a perfect game. Like, it's not just a no-hitter. It's a perfect game, which might not mean a lot to a lot of people out there. But in the baseball world, that's a huge difference. I mean, there's been – Dan can probably tell us there's probably been 300 and something no-hitters in baseball. And there's only been 22 perfect games. 21. Yeah, so so it's it's a big difference between a no-hitter and a perfect game. So – about the seventh inning is when I really was like, I realized it was a perfect game, not just a no-hitter. And then nerves set in. You know, you're nervous. Um, there's no doubt you're nervous. But I'll tell you, Tom, as a catcher, there's not a whole lot I could screw up. You know, like I don't, I'm not fielding the ground ball. I'm not, you know, having to run after a fly ball. It's, with no one on base, all I got to do is just make sure I stop a, a, call third, a, a third strike in the dirt or something or maybe field a bunt, you know, but um, – the main thing is just to call the right pitches. You know, I called every pitch of that game, and uh, Dallas only shook me off once. Um, you know, it was a foul tip, so we joke about that. But, uh, you know, so just to make sure I called the right pitch, that was probably more my nerves. But I trusted my scouting report, and uh, I had been catching Dallas, like I said, for 
five years at that point, so I knew his game. And uh, it worked out, man. It worked out. As, as we, we said earlier, I can't remember if we talked about this before or after we started the recording, but 10 years, that's one of those milestones where now we can officially start to call you old, right? <laughs> that's right. I feel old. Yeah, they were supposed to have a 10-year kind of anniversary thing, uh, reunion uh, this year and, and go back to Oakland and do some stuff. But uh, with COVID, nothing ever happened. And obviously, it all got shut down. So it was it was fun enough, uh, a reunion for me at least, to sit on the couch with my son at the beach and watch the game. That was a really cool moment. Hey, Landon, was, is there anything to the story about Braden sent you to Hawaii or gave you a trip to Hawaii and you ran into A-Rod or something like that I read about? Yeah, so uh, that's a that's a kind of a crazy story. Uh, so 15 days before, roughly, you know, a week or two before the perfect game, uh, we were playing in Oakland and we were playing the Yankees, and uh, I was catching this game also. And uh, A Rod um, was on first base, and I don't remember who was hitting, maybe Tashera or someone, and they hit a ball right down the third baseline. You know, that was right on the line. Could have been fair, could have been foul. So A Rod's busting it from first base, trying to go to third. And the umpire calls it foul. So A-Rod's over at third base, and he's got to run back across the infield to first base. So in baseball, there's just an unwritten rule that's been around forever. I mean, no one's ever told me about it, but you just it's one of those things you know. You don't run across the pitcher's mound. Right. It's just a courtesy. I mean, that's that's the pitcher's territory. He's got his foot mark where he wants it. He's got the rubber like he wants it. He, you know, it's, he's manicured his area. You just, when you run across the field, you just run around the mound. Well, A-Rod runs – from third base back to first base, and he runs directly on top of the pitcher's mound, about a foot from Braden. And Dallas is not the kind of guy to do that to. I mean, he, you know, if, if you know anything about Dallas Braden's past, he grew up in a in Stockton, California, in a gang infested area. He was involved in gangs in, in high school. I mean, Dallas is not, you know, he's got a different side to him. He's a great dude with a great heart, but he he grew up in a tough area, and he doesn't take. He doesn't take stuff like that. He, he's a fighter, and uh, he, he's not scared to stand his ground. And so as a young second-year player or third-year player like Braden was, you got this MLB all-star veteran superstar disrespect him by running across the mound. Braden did not like it, and he snapped in the middle of a game and started yelling at A-Rod. And, I mean, we had to, like, kind of go out and, like, dissolve the situation. It was kind of crazy, honestly. I mean, even I was like, man, it's all right. Just relax. Get the hitter. Let's go. But Dallas was enraged. And uh, so that became a deal after the game. The media made a big deal out of it. And, uh, you know, they went to A-Rod for a soundbite after the game. And A-Rod was like, what are you talking about? Like, whatever. Who, who is Dallas Braden? I've never even heard of this guy. You know, don't even give him his 15 minutes of fame. And, uh, and Braden's soundbite was, get off my mound. It was actually with, a, with an expletive in there. <laughs> and, and so the Oakland fans made, like, T-shirts and everything, like, get off my mound and all this stuff. And it became, like, a little situation. So fast forward two weeks later, Braden throws a perfect game. And uh, after the game, they interviewed Dallas's grandma, who was there the day of the perfect game because it was Mother's Day. And she made some comment to, about A-Rod, like, I wonder if A-Rod thinks his 15 minutes of fame are up yet, you know, and or something like that, or stick at A-Rod or something like that. And so – there was just like this beef between them, right? So anyway, after the all season rolls around, and uh, Dallas, you know, it's kind of custom when you when you throw a perfect game, you do something for your catcher. You know, Roy Holiday bought brought, uh, bought his catcher a Corvette, which was awesome. 
Okay. And uh, so Dallas obviously didn't make the money Roy Holiday meant. So I never, you know, I never expected Dallas to do anything for me. But Dallas sent my wife and I on an all-expenses paid trip to Hawaii for seven days. Stayed at the wow. Four Seasons Hotel. It was an incredible trip. And, um, yeah, it was. I'm so grateful he did that for us. And it was just awesome. So uh, one of the days we did a thing called a drive to Hana. It's a really windy road that goes up to the top of this mountain in Hawaii. And um, so – as we're driving to Hana, um, there's like this black sand beach that you can stop at. And it's in the middle of nowhere. I mean, so we we stop and we hike for 10 minutes to get to this black sand beach. And you walk out on this thing. And, I mean, there's nobody there. It's You can look for several hundred yards and see seven people. So we're total tourists. My wife's got a camera around her neck. We're walking around, taking pictures and everything. And as we're walking down the beach, we see two people sitting over on like a fallen tree and they're eating lunch. And, and I, you know, I didn't really think much of it, but there's only probably seven or 10 people on the whole beach. So as we're walking, you obviously look at them, see who it is. And as we got closer, I, I told my wife, I said, babe, I, I think that's a rod. And she's <laughs> like, no, I was like, I, I think that's a rod. I'm telling you. And as we got closer, I was like, that's, that's definitely a rod. And he saw me and recognized me. And, and I saw him and recognized him. So I started walking over to him and he stands up. He's like, he points, he's like, I was like, yeah, I'm Landon Powell, I play for the A's catch. Oh, yeah, I remember you. Yeah, hey, how you doing? And so it was just like this crazy coincidence that we run into each other on this beach. Um, here's the crazier part. So with him, I didn't even really pay attention to the, the girl that was with him because um, I was so shocked that I'm just running into A-Rod. So she comes walking up next to him, and my wife is, like, tapping me on the arm. She's like, Landon, Landon. And it's Cameron Diaz. So A-Rod was with Cameron Diaz on this black sand beach in the middle of nowhere in Hawaii. Um, and and so A-Rod you know, and I are having like small talk and like, man, that's crazy. What are you doing? And he's, he asked me, which is kind of one of these dumb A-Rod moments that you know people make fun of him for. But he said, what are you doing here? You live here? <laughs> like, you know, my wife's got a camera on her neck. We're obviously tourists. We're at some tourist attraction, black sand beach. And. Yeah, I'm like, no, I don't live here. Like, I'm on vacation. And I was like, actually, funny enough, uh, Dallas Braden sent me here as a present for the perfect game. And uh, it was that it felt good to say that because A Rod's expression kind of got mm, like a little, you know, he got his lips got tight. He didn't like that too much because him and Braden had that beef. So that's my A Rod Black Sand Beach story. Um, just one of those crazy coincidences. And, uh, Cameron Diaz is the she's the sweetest person. She was so nice to my wife, and we stood there and talked to them for probably thirty minutes. Um, it was really, really, really cool situation. See, for a lot of people, the story would have been they ran into Cameron Diaz, and A Rod happened <laughs> to be there. But yeah. being a baseball player, it was it was flipped around. Um, I, I, obviously, baseball has been. Very good to you. I won't do my Chico Asuela uh, accent. Um, at, at, from from your earliest days in the game through what it's provided for you as a major league player now as a collegiate player. And in the midst of all that, you, you have had some rough spots. Um, we we kind of talked about it in the open. You, 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 ha you have been and are battling still an autoimmune disease. And then almost eight years ago, went through the unspeakable tragedy of, of losing a child. Um, 
how how do all of those experiences land and make you appreciate what you've got now even more? Yeah, I mean, um, I think it does, Dan. And uh, you know, it's I, I, when I sit back and look at what I've been through. It's yeah, I just um, you know, as a Christian, you realize that God has this story written for all of us, and you know, sometimes you don't realize that you're walking that journey, you're walking that story. I mean, I think uh, for me, I, I look at the first 25 years of my life and feel like I took some of that for granted. Man, I was so lucky to to be talented as a baseball player and to, to have all these great experiences in high school playing for the USA team and, you know, playing for national championships in high school and then going to college and playing with one of the best college programs in the country and playing on the USA team again and going to Omaha three times and I mean, as I was living those things, I was just selfishly consuming. Like, this is great. I love this. This is awesome. And uh, and so you don't really appreciate it as much as you should at the time. Um, and then as I got into professional baseball, I started to have some 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 roadblocks, some hurdles. And I had never had those. I mean, that first 20-whatever years was smooth sailing, pretty easy. And, and then all of a sudden, I tore my ACL. I tore my ACL a second time. I tore knee cartilage a third time. I got a liver disease. You know, all these things kept happening. And it was like, man, just roadblock after roadblock. And then, uh, and then I finally broke through and made it to the major leagues, which was a great, um, a dream come true. Something I worked for my whole life. And uh, and then when I, you know, my, I guess it was my fourth year in the major leagues is when my daughters were born. And uh, and then you know, a whole nother roadblock comes in where. Um, you know, that's something that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy to go through a, a disease with your, your infant daughter and have to be in a hospital for five months and, and, uh, and witness all the things that my wife and I witnessed and, uh, and then to have her pass away in your arms. You know, that's, those are things that will never leave you. You know, those are things that will never, um, they say time heals all wounds, but I'm not sure that's necessarily true. That's a, for me personally, um, I don't think I'll ever be, uh, really, healed from that but i'm just grateful as i look back to think that i'd already become a christian at that time in my life and um if it wasn't for my relationship with god and my my community around me um i don't know how anybody could make it through a situation like that um and so that's um when i look back and, and i reflect on those things i'm just grateful that i was in a place that i could survive it and now it's just made me stronger. It's made me realize, um, I think I, like we mentioned in the very beginning of this podcast that, um, I've, as a 38 year old, I feel like I've lived a lot of life. You mentioned that. And, uh, and I think going through the death of a child and, and what that does to your family and what that does to just everything that you think of every day. I mean, it affects so much of your life. Um, it, it, it does make you, I guess I, I feel seasoned. I feel seasoned. And, uh, it's a, it's equipped me in a lot of ways, Dan, um, to handle any situation. I feel like, um, if I can go through that, I feel like I can go through anything. And it also makes me feel like I'm equipped to help other people in those situations. I deal with players on a daily basis that have things going on in their personal lives. And, um, to know that I've made it through something really tough. Um, it makes me feel like I can go and help them and help them make it through. So, um, you know, it's interesting I don't feel, I don't want anyone to ever feel bad for me. I don't feel sorry for myself. 
Um, I am grateful for the journey I've been given by God. Um, you know, I, I, I just, I'm thankful. I look at my journey as a baseball player, think how great that was and how talented uh, God gave me, made me and um, all the things that I was able to get out of the game of baseball, not only in education, but friendships and relationships and traveling the world. And then the injuries and all the things that, that he put me through with my, my body, my injuries, my liver disease, and all those things. All that did was prepare me for the big hurdle of my daughter being sick. Um, all the time I spent in hospitals and with doctors and dealing with my own autoimmune disease. I mean, that's what my daughter had was an autoimmune disease. And so um, I was able to navigate that situation and, and, and help my family because my wife was not prepared to handle that. And my in-laws and my parents weren't prepared to handle that. But I was the one person in the situation that like had been in hospitals and been with doctors and could speak the lingo. And, and I was equipped to go and kind of navigate that for our family. So it's just amazing how God writes these stories for all of us and how they're all intertwined and they're all connected. And, um, you know, he, I just, as a Christian have to trust in him and know that he's got my best interest for him. And, you know, I wear this bracelet on my wrist every day and it says, is he strong? I don't know if you can see that on your thing. And mm-hmm. it's got Romans eight twenty eight, you know, which talks about God works all things for the good of those who love him. And so when I think about my journey, I think about that, you know, that even though it's been hard and there's been some hurdles and heartbreak, um, he's doing things for the good of those who love him. And especially I love him. So I know he's doing things for the good of me. Well, and, and, it, and it's obvious that faith has played a, a key role in, in the entire story, because I think if you look nationally, statistics will point out that in, in, in families where uh, a child has been lost, there's a high divorce rate. And and you and Allie obviously have, have been able to to weather this together. And the other thing you did, and, and, and after this we're going to move on. I don't want to dwell on it too much, but I, and I appreciate your candidness here. You and Allie chose to tell that story publicly as it happened ra- rather than keep things private. You, you did it on social media. Everybody knew about baby Izzy. Why, why did you decide to allow that story to be told publicly the way you did. Yeah. So that was honestly kind of an accident, Dan. Um, that was in my, in my opinion, that was kind of a God thing where God made it public for us. Um, we had a family member that, um, you know, we were in, we were, we don't live near our family. My family's up in Raleigh, uh, that area. And we had moved to Greenville with Allison's family and, and a lot of her family spread around too. So, when Izzy got sick and then got transferred to Cincinnati, Ohio, we were just farther away from our family. So I had a cousin that really wanted to, um, she wanted to stay in touch with what was going on, but she also wanted our family to be able to pray for Izzy. And so she decided to start a Facebook page called prayers for Izzy. And she wanted my wife and I to just, you know, once a week or once every three or four days, put a, put a post on there or to text her what's going on. And she would put the post on there just to update our family. And so it started with, you know, 30, 40 people on the page. And then, you know, people would share it. You know, we need more prayers. We need more prayers. So people would share and then it had a hundred people and then, then a couple hundred people and then a thousand. And, you know, the next thing you know, there was 65,000 people following this page and, and people we've never met people from all over the world. I mean, we had, people from Australia and Scotland and things like that, writing posts to my wife and I, and it was just all the power of prayer. You know, there's a lot of prayer warriors out there, people that um, feel called by God to 
to, to pray for people they don't know. And, and, and that was some of it. Um, also, you know, I think my wife and I know a lot of people and, and just the fact that our friends and family would share that news and spread the word. Um, and so I don't think it was a conscious decision for us to go public with everything, but it was, it was more that we wanted prayers for Izzy and we felt like God was providing that through this Facebook page. And as it grew, we, we felt affirmed that God was doing this. And um, I'll tell you, that's one of the amazing things about the whole situation was, um, you know, to see how God worked good in that situation. You know, it's hard for a parent to, any parent that's lost a child, it's hard for them to probably go and say what good came out of that. Um, but I can tell you with that Facebook page, I would personally go and read comments and see folks that would say, you know, um, I don't know why, but I'm touched by your story and by Izzy and, and how strong she is. And um, I haven't prayed in five years, but because of your daughter, I prayed last night. Or a person might say, you know, I haven't been to church in 10 years, but this weekend I went to church for the first time because of your daughter and because I feel called to pray for her. So you see God working in other people's lives because of our little five-month-old daughter that's never seen the light of day. She's been in a hospital her whole life. But God's using her to connect with other people. And and that, to me, showed me right there what God's all about. And so um, I tell people, I've, I've said this in my testimonial and, and spoken at places, you know, I, I wouldn't wor- wish it on my worst enemy, but to know that my daughter didn't die in vain, then to know that... Um, we still on a weekly basis run into people that say, yeah, I remember Izzy and I prayed for her and, and she had a big impact on my life. We run into people. We, we gave these bracelets out. I see people all the time that wear these bracelets and I'll ask them about it. And I say, yeah, I prayed for her. And she, and I was going through something in my life and because I was praying for her, it opened up my relationship with God and started talking with him more and praying more and, and seeking him out. And it changed something in my life. And it's just amazing how stuff like that works. So, you know, Izzy didn't die in vain. Um, she, in her short five months, um, you know, achieved, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm envious of what she was able to do in her five months, uh, as far as impacting God's kingdom. And, uh, so that, that gave, you know, some peace to my wife and I to know that, um, although God didn't heal her here on earth and that she suffered here, that, um, at least his kingdom was glorified through it. And, uh, that's probably hard for non-Christians to understand. It's probably hard for some folks out there to wrap their head around that. But uh, um, I know that she's healthy and whole in heaven, and I look forward to seeing her one day. Landon, you know you're talking to a preacher's son here. I'm about ready to pass the plate, take up a collection. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 is, that is as strong a message as I've heard in a long, long time. And I know it's not easy. People can't see. We're doing this via Zoom. People can't see. Uh, maybe they can hear. Uh, they they can't see that that uh, you know eight years almost eight years later you still get emotional about it and th- and that part I'm sure will never leave you. But man, I appreciate your candidness uh, on on something like that and and the fact that it's become part of your testimony and that you talk about it on, on a regular basis. N- number one, as you said, helps further the kingdom. But number two, has to be therapeutic for you. I, at least I would imagine. Yeah, it is. It is therapeutic. It's hard. It's definitely hard to talk about. I mean, you fight back tears and, you know, and, and what I, you know, sometimes you bury some of the, the tough days that you spend in the hospital or tough 
visual things that you saw. You bury those things, and when you talk about it, those things come back up, so it makes it difficult. But, uh, Dan, what I've always tried to do is I've never said no to an opportunity to speak about Izzy. I've never said no to an opportunity to share my testimony when it comes to that because that's the whole reason God gave it to me. That's the whole reason God put Izzy on this earth was to use her as a testimonial for his kingdom and to use me as a testimonial. And um, So what kind of person would I be if I said no when given the opportunity to talk about her or about what I've been through? So um, even though it's not easy, I, I try to talk about it. Tom? Hey, Landon, let me ask you Got to transition back to baseball for a moment. I mean, you're only 38 and not that far removed from the ball game. Are you an analytics guy and how things have changed? Kind of what your approach is a coach is as well in terms of taking a look at all the numbers. Um, so I, I'm not, and I probably, um, I got, I got a, a buddy Trey Dyson who's going to come coach with me at North Greenville, who uh, you know is a big analytics guy, and I'm sure that he's going to start leaning on me more to pay more attention to it. Um, <laughs> as a catcher in professional baseball, I did a lot of scouting reports. I, I focused on some analytics things. Um, but at, the, at my time in my career, it, you took it in doses. You know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't um, an all-encompassing thing that you paid attention to, if that makes sense. Um, I think it has value, but I also think there's a lot of other things that um, analytics can't tell you. So as a college coach – um, there's one thing I trust more than anything else, and that's my eyes. Um, I, you know, some machine might tell me a spin rate or an exit velocity, but I trust these things more than any machine. And, and so I'll never change that. But it is good to have some information um, that backs up what you're seeing. Um, it, it's good to, you know, show some, you know, for a hitter that or a pitcher that's wanting to develop to show some gains in their velocity or gains in their bat speed or exit velocity, um, you know, that's reaffirming and it drives a player more to, to continue to succeed and continue to develop. Um, but at North Greenville, we don't have the funds to, to go all in on hit tracks and rap sodos and a lot of the other tools that you need to, to, to really uh, um, to follow the analytics as much. Um, hopefully we'll be able to get some of those things here soon and, and, and incorporate that in our program. Um, but I do, I, I think there's definitely value in it. The Oakland A's when I played with them was one of the organizations that was starting to do a lot of analytics and, and follow some of the metrics. So, um, you know, I'm not opposed to them, but I also feel like I can, um, myself, myself and my assistant coach, coach Coot Langus, we, we both feel like our eyes are the most important part. And, uh, and that's what we've been really doing a lot of our work with. Let me ask you about catching. Uh, and, and if it has changed, you mentioned when you caught Dallas Braden there that, you know, you called all the pitches and you looked at the scouting report. At the collegiate level, are, are catchers able to call a game? Or does Dan and I do so many games, they look over the dugout and every pitch is called. And, and does that slow down the development, maybe for a possibility at, at the professional level, just – kind of approach from a catching standpoint now yeah so uh i think that um when i was in college uh jerry myers of south Carolina called every pitch the first three years but i learned from him and i'm noticing what he's doing and i'm following the the sequences and and the scouting reports and so i learned so my senior year um i was able to call a lot of the pitches and he relinquished some of that duty to me i think that's a common thing in college baseball young catchers you have to kind of show them the ropes. You have to teach them. You know, you can't just 
freshman year, sophomore year, just turn over the reins and say, okay, here, call every pitch. Because, you know, college coaches are there to do a job. They're getting paid to win. And you're not going to put your salary and your career on the line with an 18-year-old catcher calling pitches. Uh, that's a big – you know, that can change a game. You know, catcher calling the wrong pitches, you'll lose a game. So I think a lot of college coaches don't relinquish that duty until they are 100% sure that player knows what he's doing. And um, so I, I have a young catcher for me at North Greenville who's a stud uh, named John Michael Fail. He's a freshman All-American. He was 5A state player of the year in high school. Um, and he's our three-hole hitter. He's He'll be a high draft pick next year. He's a real, He's a big-time player. And um, his freshman year, I called every pitch. And last year as a sophomore, I called most of the pitches. And But I let him call some in certain situations. And so hopefully this year as a junior, I can relinquish more of those responsibilities to him to call some more pitches. That's part of the development process. Um, and that's how I do it. Uh, there's some other coaches that maybe do it differently, but um, that's kind of my method. I, I didn't call a great game until I was probably in double uh, A of professional baseball. I mean, in college – the college game, a lot of breaking balls, a lot of bounce breaking balls, a lot of elevated fastballs. I mean, you're scared of the aluminum bat in college. So you, you call it a different game. You get to professional baseball, you pitch differently because of that wood bat. You know, you're throwing a lot of fastballs in, cutters. You challenge hitters a little bit more. Professional hitters have better eyes. They don't chase out of the zone as much. So bouncing curveballs all the time doesn't work like it does in college. So it took me a year or two in professional baseball to learn how to call a different game. And um, I had a great guy, Scott Emerson, who's now the pitching coach for the Oakland A's. Uh, he was with me every level in the minor leagues coming up. And he was incredible at teaching catchers to call a game. And, and for me, I mean, I, I, I will uh, give him a ton of credit for teaching me how to call a game and uh, set up hitters. I mean, we looked at percentages of change-ups and first pitch swings, second pitch swings. There's so many things from the analytics and, um, scouting reports that go into how you call a game. And those are things that he taught me. And, uh, you know, when I got to the big leagues, that was probably one of my strengths. And, and it was, I was recognized around the league as a guy that called a really good game. And, uh, I think the perfect game is something that I can hang my hat on to say that that was true. And I think now in college, um, that's been some of our success at North Greenville is that, um, I call a lot of our games. I know how to set up hitters. I know how to pitch to our pitcher strengths and, uh, it's been working for us. Landon Powell with us on uh, episode 12 of Grumpy Old Broadcasters as we're coming uh, down the stretch here to, to the end, Landon. Just a, a final thought as a former big league catcher. Watching everything that took place uh, as Major League Baseball's players and owners tried to come together to figure out how to get this shortened season underway and, and, and get something going on the field and all the, the public acrimony that went on between the two. As a former player, I'm just interested to, to get your opinion on, on what you saw this offseason and, and uh, are you strictly – the players are 100% right? Did you think the owners had some some good points? Uh, just what, what was your take on everything we saw? Because it was not a pretty – scenario for major league baseball yeah it's uh i think a lot of that had to do with the collective bargaining agreement that was coming up next year i mean i think that it, uh, this was a, a, a unique opportunity for both sides to to have a little power struggle and tug of war over what was going to happen in the collective bargaining agreement coming up next year um 
I don't necessarily think either side was right. Um, I obviously would 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 uh, side with the players more than the owners. Uh, I, I was a member of the union for a long time, so I understand the thought process of you know you're not only looking out for yourself as a player, but you're looking out for all past and future players. And um, the owners the owners are doing fine. Those guys are billionaires. They're making tons of money. Uh, the players are millionaires. Uh, and so, and then the fans look at the players as millionaires and think that they're spoiled, but they don't see the owners because those owners are not in the public eye. So they, yeah, I think that that gets lost on the public. Sometimes the fan base, they, they look at players like, Oh, you're some spoiled millionaire. Just go play the game. Yeah. Well, I get that, but there's a spoiled billionaire that's, that's, you know, being cheap toward me and you know, what's fair is fair. So I think that they, them wanting the players to take such a huge pay cut that was not um, – it didn't reflect the number of games versus the number of pay. So if they were going to put – you know, they were going to play 60 games of a 180-game season, they wanted them to take a, take a bigger pay cut than that. Um, and that, that was where the players were having an issue. It's like, you know, just prorate it per game, like, like our normal salary would be. That seems the fairest thing to do. Um, but the, the baseball didn't want to do that. And I think not having fans in the stands – also kind of complicated things because that's a lot of revenue that baseball wouldn't get, but they still get that television revenue. And uh, like I said, the owners aren't hurting. Um, at the end of the day, Dan, I'm just glad they figured it out. I'm glad they're playing. Our game needed to be played. Um, you know, baseball has, you know, when you were a kid, it was America's pastime. You know, it was the sport. And when I was a kid, you know, it was it and football were the sports, you know, it, I would say, Baseball probably still was maybe ahead of football at that time when I was a kid. But now, in today's world, baseball may be third, you know? Um, and, and that's kind of scary. The game is losing a little bit of steam with the youth. It's a slower game. The games take a little longer. Um, kids, the new generation of, of kids coming up today don't have the attention span that they used to. And so to sit down and watch a game for three hours – a lot of people just don't do that anymore. And uh, so I'm glad they figured it out. And I, I'm all for whatever's going to help uh, continue our game and grow our game. And uh, and the most important thing we needed right now was to be playing. Um, people need to be watching the games on television. This is a great time. I, I, I tell you, I've watched more, more baseball games in the last week than, you know, a year ago at this time. There's no shot I would have watched that many. Um, but because we're in quarantine or, or, or we're, you know, we're in a pandemic and people are staying home more and there's not a lot of live television on, you know, I've noticed I've been watching tons of baseball and uh, I miss it. I'm ready to get back and start coaching my own guys. Oh, that's great stuff. Tom, anything else for Landon? Got to wrap it up with this. You know, I'm like you, Landon. I finally got to watch a little bit of baseball and I'm watching the game and, and I had, had a double take. I go, that can't be right what I'm seeing. They were talking about you, Darvish, and he throws eleven pitches. How do you call that? As a yeah, we, we used to joke because I've had I've had guys like that in professional ball that I play, that had too many pitches, and I would joke, yeah, I got to take my mid off to call pitches, you know, like have two hands. But uh, um, yeah, I don't have a clue how their catcher calls pitches. They probably use a touch system or something. I don't know, but he does have a lot of pitches. Uh, that's that's detrimental to the youth in today's game because. They watch television. They see you, Darvis, has eleven pitches, and then I'm going to coach my son's eleven-year-old team. And you know, there's an eleven-year-old that's like, "Hey, can I throw my cutter 
and my changeup and my knuckleball and my my two seamer. I'm like, dude, you're 11. Just throw a fastball down the middle. All right, we'll get them out. Um, so it's you kind of have to you know slow some of these kids down. Like, hey, he's he's a 30 year old superstar. You're 11. We'll get there one day. So yeah, hey, just just one other note, Dan, for graphic is. I want to go back to uh, North Greenville and the team you have in, in Division Two. If folks get a chance when you get back to come out and take a look, because it's it really is good baseball. My background goes back to the Midwest in Division Two, so I have an affinity for D two players and the old equivalencies of how much money you get. A lot of them don't get a lot of money, but I just encourage folks to go out and take a look at North Greenville, and you know, there's pretty good baseball played at that level. There is. I appreciate that, Tommy. We we uh um. We got a good thing going. We got a great facility, brand new turf field, brand new stadium seating with seat backs and really nice bathrooms and a comfortable place to watch a ball game. Um, we play a high level. We play a fun brand. Um, we're a, uh, we usually are in the top twenty in stolen bases in the country. We're also in the top twenty in home runs. So we're a we're a fun offensive team to watch. Um, we play with a lot of excitement. I, I at South Carolina when I was in college, Coach Tanner let us have fun. And Coach Toman, uh, who was our assistant, who's now in Middle Tennessee, you know, he was in that dugout stirring up the trouble, and we were having a good time. And um, so I've kind of brought a lot of that to North Greenville. Uh, my players have a good time. You know, they're they don't take themselves too seriously, and it's a fun brand of baseball to watch. So um, I would love for people in the Greenville area to come check us out. You know, I hate that Furman's program has been canceled. That's a heartbreaker, and and I love those coaches there. And I obviously had a affinity for that program because I spent a year there. Um, but I know there's going to be a lot of Furman baseball fans that are going to be lost next spring looking for what to do, and I would love for them to come watch us play at North Greenville, and, and maybe we can uh, we can scratch that baseball itch for them. So, uh, um, and and I'll, obviously I hope that Furman brings our baseball program back. But if that doesn't happen, um, come check us out. We got a lot of good baseball going up in Tigerville. Well, and I'll just I'll say this as we wrap it up: the the one thing you're missing is a quality radio crew and i don't know about the quality part of it but tom and i now suddenly are available so listen let's go to lunch let's go to lunch i'm all in (laughs) that's great hey landon man it's it's been great catching up with you uh i i I just uh your 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 story is incredible uh your, your willingness to share uh is incredible as well and uh, you, you know I'm a big fan and a big supporter and, and just uh, praying that everything continues to move in the right direction for you. Thank you for spending uh, a little more than an hour with us here this morning. Appreciate you guys, Dan and Tom. And, uh, Dan, always good seeing you, man. Uh, you've been a good friend for a long time. So good to see your face, and y'all take care. Well, Tom, in the short lifespan of this podcast, we've had some really incredible guests uh, who have been very, very candid about some things. Jason Whitlock, uh, Marty Brenneman, who's never shy. Uh, neither one of them are shy about their opinions. I think I enjoyed that as much as anything we've done so far. Landon is just uh, an incredible – if you can call a 38-year-old a young man, he's an incredible young man. Yeah, amazing story, and, and the fact that uh, he wanted to share that not only with us, but everybody that has a chance to 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 watch this. And you know, we we run the game. We talk about sports. We're in sports all the time, but you know, there's a lot more to it. A lot of things that, that go into life uh, versus uh, our coverage of sports and his coaching of sports. And sometimes uh, a story like that puts things in better perspective maybe than, than, uh, I mean, I was always a guy that was like this. I mean, tunnel vision, 
10, 12 hours a day, six days a week, if not seven days a week. That's what I, I thought I needed to do. And, you know, the little bit older you get, you understand it needs to be this way and, and uh, you know, and, and appreciate what you have outside of what you do. And for him to be able to share that story, and I know you guys go back a lot farther than I do, but got to know him a little bit when I was broadcasting those Conference Carolina games. And, man, I'm telling you, those teams, those teams that he has at North Greenville are outstanding. Yeah, well, hopefully uh, they'll be on the field in, in the spring of 2021, and uh, we will encourage people to go out and watch them. And who knows, you and I might make a, a guest appearance up there before it's all said and done, right? It'd be nice. You know, the amazing thing, when you take a look at that team, he, his ability, and I kind of we talked a little bit about that at the outset, to be in the contacts that he has and his background, I think, has a lot to do with the major league, and that, that's attractive as well. But, I mean, big-time players that, uh, for whatever reason, transfer in from Tennessee and from South Carolina and from Clemson and, and North Carolina and others, and he, he gets them to play together. I mean, these are players, obviously, that are very good that started out at that at that level to come down here and not have, like, a personal agenda or anything. And I'm telling you, I didn't get back to it, but the 2018 team that, that he had, and, and, again, this is one thing about baseball, Dan, as you well know, and that's a team that didn't didn't win the World Series. Mm-hmm. And they in, in the regionals, I believe was, I believe that's what it was. That was one of the best baseball teams that I've, I think I've seen in a long time, and that was at the Division II level. Yeah, it's it's good stuff. He's really, really putting together a great program, or has put together a great program there, and just encourage people to go check it out once they get back on the field in the spring of twenty twenty one. Uh, next episode, uh, looking ahead, we're going to visit with the play by play voice of the Charlotte Panthers, uh, the Carolina Panthers, I guess technically, uh, Mick Mixon, who was part of one. Uh, he was in a college band. Actually, was in two college bands. Uh, or maybe one college band, and now he's he has two bands on the side now. But the the greatest name for a college band, rock and roll band, that I think I've ever heard, Tom, Break Wind and Fire. So, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, so, you could put a whole hour on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we'll 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 talk some uh, some NFL and some other things with Mick Mixon on the next episode. Tom enjoyed it. All right, as always, Dan, thank you. All right, that is going to do it for this edition of uh, Grumpy Old Broadcasters. Our thanks to Landon Powell for joining us as uh, our guest on this episode. This has been Episode 12. Remind you again that it's brought to you by our friends at Todaro Pizza, 116 North Markley Street in downtown Greenville, just down the the, uh, street from Floor Field at the West End. Todaropizza.com is the website. T-O-D-A-R-O pizza.com. You can get the hours, the menu. I can just simply tell you that uh, I've been a, a connoisseur of their pizza for almost 20 years. It is outstanding. We will see you again next time on Grumpy Old Broadcasters. Until then, for Tom and Landon, I'm Dan Scott saying God bless you. So long, everybody. <laughs>